Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman. And I'm Eli Koaz. And we are coming to you at the start of an unprecedented third Israeli election season in the span of just 12 months. No, no, I refuse to believe it. What what election? Israeli elections? It was gone again, and now it's back again, and it's back again, and it's back again. I'm ready for the fourth election already, to be honest, so... I think that's an understatement. If I were you, I would be stealing myself for the seventh election, maybe the eighth, ninth. There's no reason. Uh, twenty twenty one, yeah. That will be in the end of twenty twenty one if my if my calculations are correct. Yeah. I mean it's the miracle of Hanukkah. The Israeli elections were supposed to span just one campaign season. Now they're going for the full eight. Yeah, and instead of the oil, it's Israeli taxpayers' money that are providing this miracle. That's being burned, yeah. So on that note, we have a lot to talk about. I mean, a whole bunch of things happened in the last week uh, leading up to yesterday, which was the ultimately the deciding moment when the Knesset was uh, dispersed for the third consecutive time. Uh, a lot of things happened. And then we're also going to talk with our government uh, relations manager based in D.C., Aaron Weinberg, about House uh, Resolution 326 involving uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, a two-state solution, and Congress's opposition to West Bank annexation. So we'll check in with him. But before that, Evan has a special uh, message for our listeners. We just want to say that at Israel Policy Pod, we really appreciate your support and your listenership. And this year has been one of real growth for the podcast. We've seen a real expansion in our listener base, and we depend on your support to keep this program going, as well as all the other projects and initiatives that you look to Israel Policy Forum for, the weekly Koplau column, our Young Professionals Initiative, IPF Atid, and, you know, as we're going into another Israeli election season, we're going to be bringing back our elections resource, the 120 Project. So to support those, we really encourage you to go to support.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash donate. Any amount helps, and it goes a long way to keeping all of this going. And specifically for the podcast, if you are able to like, rate, and review our podcast wherever you're listening to this program, that also really helps. So with that, we're going to get into the program. So third elections, how did we get here? Let's just go back for a second. The eve of second elections, when the results came in, I think it was clear to a lot of people that this was a likely scenario. I mean, a lot of people thought that maybe there would be some unity government. Uh, remember the results last elections where Blue and White finished with 33 seats and the Likud finished with 32 seats. So seemingly a unity government would be easy between both of those parties, but obviously Blue and White had promised during the campaign not to sit in a government with Benjamin Netanyahu as long as he is under indictment and uh, ongoing criminal investigations. And obviously we know uh, what happened a few weeks ago when the attorney general announced that Netanyahu would be indicted. And so we had really uh, back and forth from Netanyahu to Gantz and then kind of up in the air, if any MK could get 61 signatures, they would have had the chance to form a government. But to be honest, I think this was probably the most likely outcome, obviously, of Vigdor Lieberman, who we've talked about uh, again and again on a previous podcast. He had a part to play. He could have been 
the kingmaker here to any side. He was pushing for for unity, but when he saw that that wasn't possible, he could have decided either to go back to to join a right wing government, but that would probably involve giving Netanyahu some sort of uh, immunity, or going to a a center left government, and that would involve sitting with the Arab parties. Well, there there was that possibility that had been talked about of a minority government that would be supported, that would be a Gonsalet government supported from the outside by the joint list, that alliance of Arab parties, and supported from the outside by Avigdor Lieberman's Yisrael Beitenu. And as I recall, uh, it didn't seem like it was torpedoed by Lieberman, even though in the public reaction to it, Lieberman had to take the role of saying, you know, I would never sit with the Arabs and taking on his typical bellicose stance. But it looked like that sort of initiative actually was most controversial within Kaholavan itself, that there were some of the more right-wing MKs within Kaholavan had been opposed to a narrow minority government that would be supported from the outside by the joint list. So from my understanding, it didn't even get to the point of inviting a Vigdor Lieberman to be part of that government because of what you just noted about the Kaholavan MK is talking about on the right. I mean, Kaholavan kind of encompasses a lot of different political viewpoints. Right, so on that, the right, that was V. Hauser and Yoas Hendel, I believe. Exact, who, exactly, who are both uh, members of Bogia Lonza Telem faction in Kaholavan. So we're here now and we're at third elections. And before we get into what to look forward to with third elections, some big things happened this week. I think the first Thing that we should mention is that an announcement that will have a major effect on third elections, in my opinion, is that Yair Lapid, the day before elections, announced that for the coming elections, should they happen, knowing full well that they will happen, will give up his rotation agreement with Benny Gantz. And Benny Gantz will be the sole candidate for Blue and White for prime minister for the third elections. So... Evan, what are your thoughts? I'll share it with mine, but I'd love to hear what you think. Well, Yair Lapid for Netanyahu was always the easiest target in terms of painting Kaholavan as a leftist party. Now, Yair Lapid, we know, is not a leftist. He's tried to position himself dead center. But in terms of who Netanyahu could go after, it's harder for him to frame the three generals this way, to frame Ya'alon, to frame Gabi Ashkenazi and Benny Gantz this way. But Yair Lapid, in that sense, was someone that Netanyahu could pick on. So I think it's possible that doing that could change things for Kaholavan. It's interesting to see this happen because we saw a similar outcome in the 2015 elections where Tsipi Livni was in a rotation agreement with Isaac Herzog at the head of the Zionist Union, they scrapped that rotation agreement at the last moment in an attempt to rescue their electoral fortunes. So it seems that the this idea of an internal rotation agreement in Israeli politics is something of a fantasy. Now, we've seen rotation agree- real rotation agreements happen in the past, in the 1980s, with the national unity government between Shimon Peres and uh, Yitzhak Shamir, but those were two different parties coming together. There was a unity government as opposed to something within the same party or within the same alliance like a Zionist Union or Kaholavan. So this, in a way, may have been inevitable. 
Yeah, exactly. And to just to, to compare, if there were to be a unity government with uh, Kaholavan and Likud, it would be the equivalent would be Netanyahu serving and then and then Gantz. But yeah, these rotation agreements are are kind of a bizarre invention that happened in 2015. And obviously, um, when this rotation agreement was reached between Israel Resilience Party, Hossein Israel, Benny Gantz's party, and Yair Lapid's Yeshatid. It was kind of an agreement where both parties knew that uh, for Gantz, he knew that he needed, if he wanted a chance to challenge Netanyahu, he would need to join up with Yeshatid. And at the same time, Yair Lapid saw this as really the only path for him to be prime minister in the current political climate. But what's happened is that I think Yair Lapid has really matured in, in two elections in the past few months. What he's seen is that in this constellation, uh, the most likely outcome is probably going to be a unity government. And in a unity government, he wouldn't serve uh, anyways as prime minister. So this is really, I think it's a good decision from him also for the party blue and white, but also for him personally. A lot of people criticize Lapid for being egocentric and for never putting his ego aside. And I think this will give him a a vote of confidence in the Israeli public uh, among supporters of blue and white. It certainly goes to benefit Kacholavan's positioning of itself as statesmanlike, as being mamlachti, right? That they're looking out for the broader public interest and not for their own personal egos. And it's a way to contrast themselves with Netanyahu as the guy who's just fighting for his own personal survival. It's not even about the Likud party anymore. I mean, we, we should talk about the internal division within Likud right now, the rivalry between Netanyahu and Gidon Saar. It's a real contrast because you could have a situation in which Gidon Saar is head of Likud and there would have been a national unity government yesterday. That wouldn't be a left-wing government. It wouldn't really be a center-left government. As we explained earlier, Kaholavan isn't really a left-wing party. But just in terms of producing a national unity government, which if you look at the public opinion polls is what the majority of Israelis are looking for, then that outcome would have been relatively easy to achieve. But Netanyahu is really just dealing in terms of days and weeks and trying to just keep himself treading water and out of prison and out of court. Yeah, and just one other word on Benny Gantz. I think a lot of people, he was made fun of a lot in the first campaign for mumbling on interviews and for misspeaking, but I think something has to be said for He's really stayed steady and, as you said, statesmanlike, and he's looking more and more electable to be prime minister. That's reflected in polls where uh, Netanyahu and Gantz are almost uh, even, whereas Gantz was trailing by more than 10% in the past. And also blue and white are really, especially with this rotation annulment, they're really positioning themselves as a party that can can lead Israel. And everybody kept on saying blue and white will fall apart after the first election. They'll fall apart after the second election. They're still together. And what's amazing is they seem like more united than ever before, at least to the Israeli voters. So, I mean, we're early on, but we see in the polls that they're they're doing well. And obviously Netanyahu with the indictment, it looks like he's not going to be able to escape. I think that they're in a great starting position, but obviously Israeli political campaigns, a lot can change. 
Yeah, and there's still a lot at play here. And we don't know, for example, what role Avigdor Lieberman will play. He stuck to his guns throughout the coalition negotiation period after the second election, really maintaining his firm position that he would only accept a unity government and also going back to his hard line, some would say, racist positions against the Arab politicians. But where he'll go in these next three months, we don't know. And that's uh, possibly eight seats unaccounted for. Yeah. And uh, if we look at the Likud party, it would be very interesting to see what happens uh, there. Everyone was talking about chances of a Likud uh, coup, of uh, Netanyahu being overthrown uh, uh, from w- within the party. We didn't see that happen during uh, the attempts to form a coalition. But we did see was a direct challenge from Gidon Sar, Netanyahu's uh, main rival, who's, who's still in the Likud today. And there will be a Likud uh, leadership election on December 26th, just about two weeks away, between Gidon Tsar and Benjamin Netanyahu. And Netanyahu has virtually gone, uh, I mean, his reign for the past 10 years as prime minister, he's virtually been unchallenged. There have been a few kind of primaries with against Danny Danon and Moshe Feiglin, but his last real challenge was back uh, in 2005 when he uh, b- beat uh, Silvan Shalom uh, by about 11% in terms of the Likud primary vote. So Gidon Tsar, I think, will definitely test Netanyahu. Gidon Tsar has a good amount going for him. It's interesting to look at this leadership race between Netanyahu and Tsar because Netanyahu is clearly favored to win. There's still a lot of brand loyalty for the prime minister within the voter base of Likud. And if you look at the election polls, Generally, the poll put out a couple days ago by Channel 13 in Israel, Likud wins more seats, 33 seats with Netanyahu on top, 29 with Saar in command. But I think in the long run, Saar stands to gain from all of this because even though they win four fewer seats in that scenario, you could have had a unity government yesterday because Kachol which as we've said, isn't really a left-wing party, would have been very willing to sit with Likud under Saar, and you could have already had a government and Saar can turn around and say, look, we can keep on doing this exercise over and over again where we keep on having Netanyahu on top of the party, but we're not going to get a government. And each time that Netanyahu fails, it only bolsters Gideon Saar's position in the long run. Exactly. I, that, that's a great point. And on top of that, in those polls, we also see that Gideon Saar, despite bringing less seats to the Likud, he actually brings more seats to the right wing ultra-Orthodox bloc. Um, and that's consistent in every poll we've seen where you have Netanyahu and Gideon Sar compared. So there's going to be a lot of variables to watch here. It's not just about the general Knesset election. We also have the uh, internal primary and the rivalry within Likud. So the dust is not settled yet. Now we're going to move over from Israeli elections to our own American politics. We have Aaron Weinberg, our government relations manager, joining now to talk about HRES 326, covering some very important topics, two-state solution and opposition to annexation. Aaron, what can you tell us about this piece of legislation? So this piece of legislation is something that IPF supported. IPF does not support legislation lightly, nor do we make a habit of doing so, but we felt that this being the first uh, legislative initiative to in the history of the Congress to specifically talk about the threats of West Bank annexation to Israeli security, that it was critical for us to sort of 
highlight that clear and present danger and sort of make an exceptional case and come out and support the res- this resolution. The resolution, when it came to the floor, uh, spoke about a number of important things. And again, the, the resolution was a sense of the House. So it was not a binding resolution. It was called a non-binding resolution that specifically talked about what is the policy position of the House of Representatives. And it did sort of four major things and spoke about four major issues. The first one being the importance of the two-state solution, the importance of the international consensus around the final status issues as supported and maintained by Democratic and Republican administrations for the past two decades. And those final status issues are all things that have been discussed on this podcast many, many times. The second thing was warning of the risk of possible Israeli annexation of the West Bank and the security challenges that it poses to Israel and the, and the, the issues there. Again, uh, an issue IPF has championed for a long time. The third one was through an amendment that was adopted later in the process about the importance of uh, robust U.S. security assistance to Israel and the sanctity of the 10-year memorandum of understanding that was signed between the U.S. and Israel for $3.8 billion annually. Again, the largest MOU, I believe, between uh, any two countries in the history of the world. And again, that is all uh, security assistance. And the fourth one, again, also adopted from a different amendment later in the process uh, of this resolution was uh, the importance of restoring aid to the Palestinians. And again, there's been a report in Politico that even Prime Minister Netanyahu has gone to President Trump to request uh, President Trump continuing to restore, I should say, aid to Palestinian security forces because of how critical it is for Israeli security, the Palestinian security forces being so really Aaron, the first Aaron, line. That, that covers, so the, this clearly a very comprehensive piece of legislation, and it covers a lot of core policy imperatives for Israel Policy Forum, a lot of them that are embodied in our 50 steps before the deal. You talked about restoring, for example, some of the funding for the Palestinians. But as you mentioned, this is a non-binding resolution. So why is it significant? The major significance is that symbolic and political messaging is really critical in diplomatic relations. This sends a sign regardless of the political situation in Israel, and again, this was done before third elections were called, it sends a sign about where the House of Representatives and where one of the major bodies um, and co-equal branches of the United States government, be be it uh, uh, Congress, is on, on these issues. It's a statement of policy. And so what we have seen is that, you know, while the Trump administration in many ways has sought to redefine many of, or, or they say, take issues off of the table, this is saying, well, there is actually another voice coming out of the United States Congress, out of the United States government that is continuing to be committed to the bipartisan consensus that has existed for over two decades on these final status issues. Aaron, I want to ask, you spoke about the bipartisan uh, consensus. So we had here uh, four Democrats uh, vote against the resolution, not surprisingly, uh, Ilhan Omar, uh, AOC, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley. Why do you think that is? Like, what's in the resolution that they don't support? I mean, I know that uh, Rashida Tlaib is uh, outspoken, a one-state supporter. And then we had three uh, Republicans who voted with the Democrats uh, on this resolution. So, Can you speak so a bit about that? Just to correct you a little bit, there were five Republicans who voted for the resolution, two of whom are retiring, and three of whom are part of the Problem Solvers Caucus. There were four Democrats, as you mentioned, sometimes referred to as a squad who voted against, 
and two Democrats, Congresswoman McCollum from Minnesota and Congresswoman Chuy Garcia from Illinois, who both voted present or abstained. So in terms to answer your question about the four Democrats who voted no, each of them voted no for their own reason. And each of them, I believe many of them, issued a statement. As you said, Rashida Tlaib is not a supporter of the two-state solution. Ilhan Omar, Representative Ocapio-Cortez, and Representative Presley of Massachusetts all voted no. I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but the third piece that was covered in the resolution, um, the, the idea of the sanctity of aid to Israel, was, a resolu- was an amendment that was adopted quite late in the process after it had already gone through the Foreign Affairs Committee, but rather right before it came into the House. And this was seen by many folks as a direct swipe against uh, conditioning aid and really a condemnation of those that sought to condition aid. And I know that Congresswoman Omar, along with Congresswoman McCollum, both said that they voted the way that they did because of the inclusion of that amendment in, in the resolution. I should note, you know, this is this is something challenging. You know, I, when I worked on the Hill, it was always very easy to find something in a piece of legislation that we didn't agree with and use that small piece as a reason why to vote against something. But the vast majority of offices and as you saw with uh, 226, you know, of the 300, excuse me, 226 offices voting in favor of the 435, you saw from that that the majority of members of Congress found a reason why to vote for the resolution as opposed to a reason to vote against it. Now, flipping the last question on its head, though, the vote, even with the handful of Republicans who voted in favor of it and a handful of Democrats who did not support this resolution, the overwhelming majority of representatives who voted for it were Democrats. What do you think that says about where the two-state solution and the question of annexation sit in American politics? And is there a way to come back from this partisanization that it seems to be reflected in the breakdown of that vote? Yeah, I'm very, very troubled by it. And it's even even more than you said, the Republican, the Republican leadership in the House of Representatives whipped or rather, you know, told their members to vote against this resolution, which I believe marks the first time in history that Republican leadership has directly told their membership to vote against two states. I find this very, very, very troubling. This resolution follows up on a resolution that was passed a number of months ago, HRS 246, that was a condemnation of VDS and had one line about the supported two-state solution, and that passed 398 to 17. Again, that did not have spell out all of the details about final status and all of the other things that were in this resolution. But I think what we can take from this is that this issue actually in the, in the House of Representatives these days has to our, Litsarenu, to our great sort of trouble, is less and less having to do with policy and more and more having to do with politics. Because between these two votes, you have different advocacy organizations and many different advocacy organizations advocating for the different resolutions. And I think what we're seeing is in the House of Representatives, unfortunately, is for the vast majority of members, they are playing their politics much more than they're thinking about the policy at hand. And given who is supporting what and who and donors and reelection and all of the things that go into making a political decision, that is weighing on members in their uh, votes much more than policy issues and, you know, support for a particular sound policy, which I believe really creates an incredible opportunity for Israel Policy Forum. 
as an organization that's guided by policy over politics, then that really works to have a nuanced and important voice on Capitol Hill supporting anybody who wants to work towards a Jewish democratic and secure Israel. This creates a huge opportunity for us to fill that vacuum as not just another political voice trying to cut through the noise, but doing something totally different in totally different ways. And we were very, very involved, especially in the amendment process of trying to find a bipartisan amendment that would help bring parties together. And while it wasn't a large number of Republicans that supported the resolution, the fact that there was any Republican support at all, I think, is a great testament to our and many other uh, organizations' work on this resolution. Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we'll make sure to include a link in the description of this podcast where people can actually take a look at the text of this uh, resolution. Aaron, I want to thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Keep it up on, on Capitol Hill and congratulations on, on working to get this passed. Uh, thanks so much. And thank you to all the listeners for continuing their interests and looking forward to being again with you soon. So before we close out this episode, Evan, any any last any last thoughts? Just that it's an interesting times on both sides of the Atlantic. I mean, it feels like Israel is maybe trying to play catch up with the 2020 election craze here in the United States. You guys just couldn't stand not to have an election while you watched us have one over here in the U.S. Uh, well, I'm not sure about that. I mean, no one's, uh, I mean, a few people are talking about the Democratic primary here, but nobody, uh, nobody is really paying too much attention. And, you know, it's a sad state of affairs that we have to uh, go through this once again. I would say that Israeli democracy is maybe shifting into a state of quantity over quality. Yes, well, as the only democracy in the Middle East, Israel is doing its best to prove that point probably on overkill, but for all of our listeners who are loyal and passionate and even are <laughs> have the energy to follow another election cycle, we'll be providing pod- weekly podcasts, updated polls, and all sorts of cool resources on our elections site, uh, the 120 Project. You'll be able to find that at israelpolicyforum.org slash elections3. Elections three, not elections four. That will be coming in a few months. That's it for now. Again, feel free to give us a a positive review on uh, wherever you're listening. Uh, Very helpful. And Evan, thanks a lot. And we'll catch you next week. 